came to the early disciples, and they were sent off in power to bring Christ to the rest of the world. This Sunday is Trinity Sunday, where Christians around the world will reflect this morning on the glorious truth about the identity of our God. You see, Christians believe God is triune, which means there's one God who exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And this truth is at the same time a mystery. If this seems like something you don't fully quite understand, then you're probably doing it somewhat right. We're not meant, I think, exactly get our heads all the way around this truth. Um, But for me, the Trinity um, has been one of the most enriching truths that I've learned in my life. And the more I focus on the Trinity, what I've found is it brings more and more fruitfulness. It brings more and more joy. It brings more and more truth to every other aspect of our faith, of our beliefs, of our Christian life. There's a, a writer who said that the more Trinitarian you get, the sweeter your faith. And he said the more Trinitarian you're reading, the sweeter the scriptures are. The more Trinitarian your prayer more intimate your prayers are. So this morning what I want us to do is reflect on the Trinity and, and one of the main objectives of the Trinity, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has had throughout history, which is to rescue you and I. And there's not really a to-do at the end of the sermon. There's not really an application except to maybe hopefully draw you into worship this morning, that you might be overwhelmed in the presence of Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who have unconditional love for us, and have worked, gone out of their way, given of themselves to bring you and I into the family. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is where we will begin this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback on the rows in front of you, underneath the seats, excuse me. The past couple of weeks, I have been on an adventure, Uh, and so as a favor for a friend of mine at the high school I used to teach at, I've uh, finished off the year teaching middle schoolers, which is not my skill set, you could say. Um, We used to say when we taught high school that freshmen are barely human, right? And the goal is by the time they get to be seniors, they'll, they'll be there in that category, Well, if that's true, I'm not sure what's to say about fifth graders um, or seventh graders, except to say at the end of a very long school year, they've got a lot of energy and a lot of excitement, and it can be quite a challenge to kind of throw yourself into these classrooms and try to uh, harness this together. Um, But what's interesting about a school, uh, I taught high school for five years, I teach at university now, is the community that builds up around a school the camaraderie that builds up with the various teachers, that builds up between teachers and students, that builds between the students themselves. And to kind of come in cold at the end of a school year, and every time I say like the end of the school year, I see a children still in here get happier and the parents get a little sadder. Um, but this is just what's happening. You, you come in cold and you're faced with all of these relationships, right, with this community, and you're a little bit on the outside. And you can see just enough what is there and what's happening. And then the sign of a welcoming, inviting community is that, sure enough, they make space for you. And they invite you into that community. And so, um, you know, after a couple of weeks, 
I understand what's going on with the, the teachers, and they've become friends of mine. And I see what's happening with the students, and the students have invited me into their um, role. In fact, I got teacher gifts, um, which I think was the best two weeks of my life there. Um, just, just sub a little bit, and you might get a gift at the end of the year. Um, but this movement, I think, as a stranger into a community that already exists, is a picture of what has happened in our salvation. You and I, strangers, invited into a community that has already existed, that's already been there, and now able to enjoy with perfection that which we did not earn, but that which we were invited into. You know, there are lots of ways to talk about salvation in the scriptures. There's lots of different metaphors used, models used. Some of them are kind of impersonal. Um, this kind of, there's kind of these legal ways to look at it. So you're forgiven. Um, you're not guilty. Um, you're free from punishment. Some of the metaphors in Scripture are much more personal. Um, reconciliation. So these two parties, these two groups had a relationship that was broken, and now because of Jesus, they're brought back together. One of, I think, the most personal models of salvation, and as I've studied the Bible and theology, I now come to think it perhaps is the most comprehensive of metaphors to really get into the truth and the beautifulness of our salvation is the metaphor of adoption. And the scriptures use this over and over again throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, to describe what's happened between humanity and God, that an adoption has taken place. In Romans 8, we get a text that is, is one of the more beautiful texts to describe this. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Romans 8, chapter 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, sons and daughters of God. 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with them. All who are led by the Spirit are children of God, sons and daughters of God. And they're led to address the Father in a certain intimate way. They're led to relate to God, not as this kind of foreign divine being, not as this ruler in which we, we might not want to have direct access to, but as our Father, Abba, which is most typical of how Jesus related to his Father throughout his life in the Gospels. Indeed, to be adopted into God's family, the Father, Spirit, and Son, really is for you and I to participate in the Son's relationship to the Father. So Christians believe that for all of eternity, there's been this family relationship inside of God, inside of the Godhead. That the Father, who by definition, his name implies that there has to be children, has had eternal love for his Son, Jesus. Again, the name itself, the title itself, implies this relationship. And then you have the Holy Spirit, who kind of flows back and forth between the Father and the Son, um, bringing love and joy and peace back and forth between them, kind of the unity of the bond that they have. 
and, and the scriptures would lead us to believe that this is what was happening before anything else was created. We had a happy God in need of nothing. We had a God who wasn't lonely. He had perfect community. He experienced perfect love without end. The Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father perfectly. And then we were led to believe that God chose to create something other than himself, not because he needed anything, not because he wanted to fix any problems, but because this is the nature of such love. If you love something deeply, you want to share that love with something else. And so the love of the Trinity overflows into this thing we call earth and heaven created in Genesis 1. And the goal from the beginning was for this other-than-God creation to experience the love that the fathers had for the Son for eternity. But the Scriptures would say things go south pretty quickly. Human beings rebel. They're kicked out. This relationship is fractured in a serious way. It's not just that we've sinned and need to be forgiven. It's that we have loved and loved wrongly. We have betrayed the God who loves us and desires relationship with us. We turn inward on ourselves with our desires and our passions and our priorities. But in light of this, in spite of this, this rebellion on our part actually creates the foundation for God to show who he is more than anything else. For him to show the true depths of his love which is a love that's self-giving, a love that's self-sacrificial. And so our triune God says, not so fast. You're not going to get away with this, this easily. And so Jesus, the Son, invades creation, becomes man, in order to make you and I, human beings, children of God. It's an old, old axiom of the church The Son of God became man so that men, humans, can become sons and daughters of God. To be adopted into God's family is to participate in the role that Jesus has had for eternity as the beloved Son. I want to flip with you and show you this somewhere else in Luke chapter 3. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, And it has, I think, such a beautiful picture of the Trinity and and what we're talking about with adoption. Luke 3, we'll pick up in verse 21. This is the story of Jesus' baptism. It reads like this, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, I want to point out a couple things here. As Jesus is getting baptized, um, first, we're, we're told as Christians reading these texts, receiving these from the church, that this is an important event. This is what we call a triple tradition story, which means it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, almost with no changes, word for word, almost the same. So it made a big impression on Jesus, a big impression on his disciples who followed him, a big impression on the early church. This is a huge moment in Jesus' life. And when we, looking back on this moment, observe it, 
what pops out to me and, and many others is that what we have here in history is a glimpse into eternity. This is a picture of the Trinity right here, and a picture of what's been happening inside of the Trinity even before anything else was. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and is now present and leading him. And then the skies open up and the Father declares with a loud voice, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the voice and the message that Jesus has been hearing for eternity. And the skies open up, the heavens have their curtains rolled back, and we see it played out in history. Now, it's an interesting thing, this, this baptism of Jesus, and people have struggled with this um, ever since we first started studying the Scriptures thousands of years ago. The question being, why does Jesus get baptized? Baptism, both here and later on in Christian tradition, is associated with repentance and forgiveness for our sins. And obviously, Jesus doesn't need to repent. Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven of any sins. One of the church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria, I did my thesis on him, so I'm a little bit biased. That's what I think is one of the more beautiful ways of explaining this. So what Cyril says is in this baptism, you have a human being, God becoming man. You have a human being in which the Spirit feels comfortable and welcome descending on. And he goes back and looks and finds in Genesis a text where because of our sin, Genesis says the Spirit of God leaves human beings. And he says what's happened is at the beginning of the world, the Spirit hovered over creation, wanted to walk and lead and move in people, but then got pushed out by our sin. We turned away. We stopped listening. And in the baptism of Jesus, the reason Jesus gets baptized is because on our behalf, he's representing us. He says, Spirit, you're welcome again. Something new is happening. Descend upon me and upon my brothers and sisters. And so the Gospels would tell us that Jesus is a Spirit-led person. That he himself responds to and listens to and is led by the Holy Spirit, particularly in Luke. He'll keep going throughout the life of Jesus, throughout the Gospel, and we'll be told over and over again the Spirit is leading him to do this. Immediately, he's led to go be tempted by the Spirit. And the Spirit will continue to lead him. Remember in Romans 8, we're told all who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. Jesus, as the Son of God, shows us what it is to be led by the Spirit. Jesus is our representative when we are united with him we're able to receive that which he has, which is this close relationship to the Spirit, this ability to hear and believe the Father. One of the interesting things about the baptism text to me is how Jesus is told, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I think this is an important moment in the life of Jesus, if we're just looking historically at his life, um, because I, I believe that this kind of identity confirmation in such a dramatic way, it's going to be pivotal to Jesus as he goes through all the different things he goes through in the Gospels. I would imagine when Jesus is being tempted for 40 days and nights, that when it gets tough, he thinks back to this baptism. 
I'm the beloved son. God is well pleased with me. I'm imagining when the crowds are around him and he's healing people and things are going well, he's constantly reminding himself, retreating in prayer, I am the beloved son. You are my father. When things get more difficult, when he's betrayed, before that when he's praying in the garden, before the crucifixion, perhaps this is what's on his mind. What's interesting is that Jesus is not the first human being to be called a beloved son of the Father. This is over and over again found in the Old Testament. Israel, God's people, are sons and daughters of God. They are beloved. They're unconditionally loved. Here was the problem, though, before Jesus. People have a hard time truly believing that. They hear it. They want to believe. Life happens. They happen. And there are these moments which we can probably relate to where we go, well, maybe I'm not a beloved son. And if I start doubting that identity, then I start living out of another identity. I was reminded working with the middle schoolers, this is why you have to be careful working with kids and correcting behavior. When they do something wrong, you need to correct it, not because they're a bad kid, but because that behavior is bad. It's not, the problem is not that behavior is consistent with who they are. The problem is the behavior isn't consistent with who they are as a child of God. Jesus, perhaps, is the first human being to ever hear these words and truly believe them. And in that way, perhaps Christians are called not only to believe in Jesus, but also to believe like Jesus. To hear these words, know that we are one in Christ, adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. Adoption is one of the more beautiful things that I think exists in the world. You know, Christians have a long history of being very generous and sacrificial with adoptions. And this is not just kind of a random fact. It goes all the way back to our belief that we're adopted. And that our adoption cost God. It was sacrificial. This doesn't always have to be adoption in a legal way or a court way. I think most of us hopefully know what it's like to feel unofficially adopted into someone else's family or community or have someone who is unofficially adopted into your family or your community. But adoption at its heart, what's so beautiful about it is it's a a community of people, it's a relationship that's already existed, that's already working, hopefully, who find a stranger, a stranger in need, and say, by grace, by gift, unconditional, will make you part of our family. The love that we have for one another, you'll experience. The resources that we have are now yours. So I actually have an adopted sister, and she comes from a very bad background, a lot of violence. Um, she still bears scars from when she was very little from family members, um, And my parents, some of you know them, are very well-to-do Sugarland people, right? Um, Upper middle class. They've worked hard to to make some money, to be financially stable, to have a good, stable life for their children. 
And I was the beneficiary of that, still am today. The love that they had for one another and the life that they built, the world that they created for themselves, was given to mine when I was given to me when I was born. By right, by blood. Now, there were a few times along the way they almost disowned me, um, but I made it through those periods. And still to this day, right, I'm a skinner. Um, I was talking with a teacher. We were talking about children and, and kids, especially going off to college, about options that kids have and about how sometimes a bigger safety net gives you more options, right? Um, if you don't have family that can protect you or financially support you, then, yeah, you, you maybe need to really zero in on getting a degree as fast as possible, getting a job as fast as possible so you can provide for yourself, maybe even help provide for your family, People like me and many other I know who come from a family that's pretty stable themselves, they have some freedom. They can travel a bit if they want. They can get like a liberal arts degree if they want. And hope to make money there. And I was talking to a friend just, just this week again, and, and, and I was talking about, you know, what's the safety net for me, for me and my wife? What's the lowest we'll ever be in this world? Most likely living at my parents' house. Very big house in full share. Most likely being forced to go back to school if something had happened so that eventually we'll be able to get jobs. This is just the life that I live. I'm surrounded by people, not just my family, who I don't think would ever let me sleep under a bridge for a night. Now, my parents would let me sleep in jail for a couple nights. Right? I don't think it's really physically possible for me to ever go homeless, to hit rock bottom because of the family that I have. Now, and again, I've always had that. This is mine by blood. Tough for you. And then my little sister comes along from a family very different. The safety net, non-existent. How far can you fall? The farthest you can imagine. And my parents go... You're a Skinner. Now, all the love that I've ever received from my parents, she now gets. All the resources available to me, all the protection that I receive, all the stability that I have, is now hers. She didn't really do anything to get this. It was an unconditional choice. We are by grace, what Jesus is, by nature. Jesus from eternity is God's son. That's who he is in his very most intimate identity. You and I are not like Jesus in that way. We haven't always been and definitely are not part of the Trinity. But yet, through God's grace and this mysterious transaction, through his love for us, We've been invited into this adoption. We now, participating with Christ, united with him, get to experience, enjoy, be transformed by that which has always characterized the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, when I really think about this, when I give myself space and time, 
to try to grasp my mind around these, these truths, I typically find myself overwhelmed. I typically find myself you know, brought to this joyful state of worship. I quickly find myself unable to use words anymore. Because what I feel and the hope that I have goes beyond any words that I could you know, feasibly come up with. Words kind of start to fail me. I start to think about the fact that the God of the universe, the God who created all things, has adopted you and I to be his children. The Spirit's role in this is to again lead us and transform us into the image of Christ that we might experience more and more of this salvation as adoption. Now, there's an early church father, Diodocus of Fortyke, um, who said this about the Spirit's role. He said the Spirit was like a mother. When teaching us to cry, Abba, like what we read in Romans 8, the Spirit behaves like a mother teaching her own little baby to say, Daddy. Repeating that word along with the baby until it becomes so much the baby's habit that it calls its daddy even in sleep. If you've had the privilege of seeing an infant being raised, the infant starts to make noises, starts to babble about, and then the mom and dad start competing to try to get them to be the first words out of said child's mouth. I don't know if you know, there's a comedian named, um, I'm losing his name now. There you go, Jimmy Fallon. Um, wife with the assist. <laughs> Clutch. Jimmy Fallon, he actually had his first kid a few years ago, and he wrote a book um, that you could read to children to encourage them to say, Daddy first. Um, it's confusing. <laughs> Do y'all have it? That's awesome. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> That's a story we need to hear. And the babbling goes on, and kids learn language really quickly. Like, you'll never, ever learn language again. They don't go to English class. They don't learn rules. They just see context. You use this word around this object enough times, and it starts to make sense. And then they start to realize that they are their own self, and you are a different self. That in the same way they can refer to objects as things that are not them, they can refer to people as things that are not them. And there comes this magical time when the babbling switches over into this clear, touching, moving language of expression. Mama. Daddy. And more and more love gets infused in this name. It's an intimate intimate thing to, to share these names be called mother, to be called father, to call someone your son or your daughter. And this, this church father says this is the Spirit's role. He comes into our lives, and we're not used to being so loved. We're not used to having so great a father. And so he, he works with us. He says, repeat with me. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. And the Christian life is hopefully over time allowing that to become more comfortable, allowing that to become more true, to where you don't even have to think about it anymore. In your sleep, when you wake up, you are the Father's child. It's second nature to you, like it becomes to an infant or a toddler. 
All who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of the Father. The result of this adoption, the Scripture says, love. The love that God has had for eternity poured out into us. Now we get to experience that. We get to be transformed by that. We get to share that with other people. The way God has shared that with us. It was once written, we should not think that we know the love of God that's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit if it has not, at least once, led us to forgive an offense or love an enemy or be reconciled with a brother or a sister. One way to imagine the Christian life is that we are called to simply reflect this family love that we experience to the rest of the world. As we are forgiven, as we are reconciled, as we are loved, we let this pour over out of our hearts. This is why in First John, which is a book mainly about love, um, he goes on and on and on about love, 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 love. And it gets to a point where you start wondering, perhaps, like, you just can't command yourself to love people. Particularly some people. You know what I'm talking about. The Christian ability to love, even to love enemies, does not come from some kind of willpower inside of us. It doesn't come from a choice we make. It doesn't come from like a self-help book we read or a mantra we repeat to ourselves. The love that I have for other people, the love that I should have even for my own enemies, is not my love. It's a love that I've received, not been able to keep to myself. It overflows out of me. It's bigger than me and naturally encompasses the people around me. It's not my love toward others. It's the love of God flowing through me, pouring out of me towards the people around me. The Spirit takes what's the Son's, this love, and He makes it ours. The Father's loved us so much that He catches us up into this loving fellowship He's enjoyed for eternity with His Son. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else is a lie. What happens a lot to myself and many is we get distracted and we start to believe lies. And stress makes truths start to disappear and get smaller and smaller. My hope for all of us is that we've had some of these experiences where the distractions have kind of gone away and the stresses have become background noise and we just sit in this love, and we realize what it means to be children of God, to be united with Christ. And Christians throughout history have tried to ascribe this experience of just sitting in the presence of God, absorbing in this love. And they've often described it in in ways that, in this moment, they don't know if they'll make it. It's so powerful and beautiful. And at the same time, they don't know if they want to make it out. What else is there for me? This is the highest goal. This is why Paul says, to die is a win for me. To go and be with Christ? He goes, I'll probably stay because you people need me. (laughs) But if I got to pick and I had no guilt on my hands? Goodbye. I'm going to go enjoy this perfect fellowship without any distractions, without any lies, 
So my invitation for you this morning is to, through worship, through contemplation, through prayer, to draw close to God, to draw close enough to hear Him calling, to hear Him saying your name, to hear Him saying you are my child, to just sit and enjoy and be transformed by that type of experience. It's Trinity Sunday. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have so rescued us, have so loved us, that we'll just play catch-up the rest of our lives, trying to understand it, trying to put our minds around it, trying to enjoy it fully. And I'm excited about that. And I hope you are and that you'll join me in this journey. Will you pray with me?